Welcome, my friends, welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 14th day of June, 2009. I'd like to encourage my listeners, as always, to look into the websites CorbettReport.com and AlqaedaDoesn'tExist.com, where you can find previous episodes of this podcast as well as links to our interviews, videos, and articles. I'd also like to remind my listeners that the Corbett Report podcast is now being backed up to archive.org, so simply search for Corbett Report on archive.org to access our previous podcast episodes going back to episode 70. In the event that the Corbett Report is ever offline for whatever reason, you'll still be able to access our previous episodes on archive.org. And now, without further ado, let's get to today's real news. Today's first real news story comes from the Washington's blog, Friday, June 12, 2009. 9-11 truth activist sues Glenn Beck and Fox News for defamation. An East Coast 9-11 truth activist is preparing to file a defamation lawsuit against TV radio personality Glenn Beck, the producers of the Glenn Beck program, and the Fox News channel. Specifically, Greg Hoover will be suing the above-described defendants in federal court for Beck's having repeatedly broadcast statements characterizing those who question the government's official version of the events of 9-11 as anarchists, terrorists, and as persons denying the Holocaust. The complaint will note that on October 22, 2007, Beck suggested that those identifying themselves as associated with the 9-11 truth movement are dangerous anarchists who deny the Holocaust and are the kind of groups that Timothy McVeigh would come from. The suit will also note that during Beck's June 10th broadcast, Beck linked the murder of the Washington, D.C. Holocaust Museum Guard with 9-11 truthers. Today's second real news story comes from Infowars.com, June 10, 2009. Glenn Beck's outrageous lie. Racist Von Brunn is hero of 9-11 truthers. There should be absolutely no doubt Glenn Beck is a government disinfo operative tasked with taking down the 9-11 truth and patriot movements. In fact, Fox News, as a primary fount of Operation Mockingbird, is tasked with attacking not only the 9-11 truth movement, but the pro-liberty and constitution movements as well. Our country is now vulnerable, the operative Beck declares. Those people who would like to destroy us are enemies like Al-Qaeda. They'd like to destroy us and they will work with anyone. There are also people like white supremacists or 9-11 truthers that would also like to destroy the country. They'll work with anybody they can. In other words, the 9-11 truth movement, according to Beck, will work with Al-Qaeda. If you read between the lines, Beck is calling for the government to dish out the same kind of violent response to the truth movement the CIA created Al-Qaeda received in Afghanistan or at Camp Gitmo. Beck is calling for murder and torture of people who disagree with the government. Today's third real news story comes from the Toronto Sun, 10th of June 2009. 
British cops allegedly waterboarded drug suspects. Britain's police watchdog investigated brutality allegations Wednesday against six London officers who were suspended over claims they abused suspects arrested in drug raids. Media reported the officers used torture techniques, including a variation on waterboarding or simulated drowning, and dunked suspects' heads in buckets of water. The Independent Police Complaints Commission said it was investigating the conduct and actions of six police officers during the execution of two drugs warrants at addresses in North London on November 4, 2008. The Metropolitan Police Force confirmed the six officers were suspended over their conduct during the arrests of five people in the London borough of Enfield in November. The force would not comment on the specific nature of the allegations. Today's fourth real news story comes from asianews.it, the 8th of June 2009. U.S. government securities seized from Japanese nationals, not clear whether real or fake. Italy's financial police has seized U.S. bonds worth 134.5 billion U.S. dollars from two Japanese nationals at Chiasso on the border between Italy and Switzerland. They include 249 U.S. Federal Reserve bonds worth $500 million each, plus 10 Kennedy bonds and other U.S. government securities worth a billion dollars each. Italian authorities have not yet determined whether they are real or fake, but if they are real, the attempt to take them into Switzerland would be the largest financial smuggling operation in history. If they are fake, the matter would be even more mind-boggling, because the quality of the counterfeit work is such that the fake bonds are undistinguishable from the real ones. Today's fifth real news story comes from MediaMonarchy.com, June 12, 2009. Court orders Pete Doherty to get medical implant for drug addiction. Pete Doherty, singer for the English indie rock band Baby Shambles, has been ordered to have a medical implant to prevent the use of drugs, according to the Associated Press. Doherty appeared in a Stroud, Western England court today, where he entered a plea of guilty to heroin possession and driving without a license or insurance. It is not specified what sort of implant the British state demanded the rock singer receive. Naltrexone, an opioid receptor antagonist, is often used for heroin addiction. Some practitioners use a naltrexone implant placed in the lower abdomen. The implant has not been shown scientifically to be successful in curing the subject of their addiction. Implants are used for medication compliance reasons. Today's final real news story also comes from MediaMonarchy.com, June 13th, 2009. Ardent Century 09, NORAD Northcom terror drills on June 18th to 24th. Pay extra attention in Oregon as these exercises coincide with the fictional Operation Blackjack explosion in Portland on June 22nd. From NORTHCOM, North American Aerospace Defense Command and U.S. Northern Command are planning to conduct a combined exercise June 18th to 24th that will incorporate several military exercises with a National Guard exercise. 
These linked exercises are referred to as Ardent Century 09. Events will take place in multiple venues across the country, including Iowa, Kansas, Oregon, Wyoming, and off the east and west coasts. The exercise will allow several Department of Defense organizations and some federal and state partners to implement plans and respond to a variety of notional events. Historically, exercises like these have helped both DOD and other agencies review their processes and procedures and focus their future training efforts on closing gaps and identifying areas that need additional attention. Welcome, my friends, to episode 90 of the Corbett Report. Our leaders are psychopaths. Psychopathy, like schizophrenia, is one of those psychological disorders that have entered into the popular vernacular despite the fact that most people don't know what it means. Taking a cue from episode 88 of the Corbett Report podcast, You Are Being Programmed, It seems that we've been programmed to associate psychopathy with this. A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Like every good lie... The misconception that all psychopaths are deranged serial killers and likely cannibals has an element of truth to it, insofar as it is easily enough demonstrable that psychopaths are overrepresented in the penal system, and yes, of course, many of the famous serial killers from history have been clinical psychopaths, such as a Ted Bundy, for example. But, of course, elementary logic tells us that just because many criminals and serial killers are in fact psychopaths does not mean that all psychopaths are criminals and serial killers. In fact, what's even more disturbing is the idea that there are many psychopaths that we encounter in our daily lives without ever knowing that these people are in fact psychopathic. This, of course, starts to get into the area of what exactly is a psychopath anyway, And how exactly do you tell if someone is a psychopath? Well, for the past four decades, the person that most people have turned to for that answer is Dr. Robert Hare. He is a professor emeritus at the University of British Columbia and a renowned psychopathologist and psychophysiologist who helped develop the clinical diagnostic test for psychopathy almost 35 years ago. Dr. Hare's very informative website on the subject can be found at hare.org, H-A-R-E dot org. And on there, you'll find a link to some articles that have been written about Dr. Hare's work, including an article called Psychopaths Among Us by Robert Hirsch. And I'd like to quote from that article. Quote, Like every scientist, Hare likes a good puzzle. And that was reason enough to make a career out of psychopaths. 
These were particularly interesting human beings, he said. Everything about them seemed to be paradoxical. They could do things a lot of other people could not do. Lie, steal, rape, murder. But they looked perfectly normal, and when you talked to them, they seemed okay. It was a puzzle. I thought I'd try and unravel it. Hare arrived at UBC in 1963, intending to follow up his doctoral research on punishment. Certain prisoners, it was rumored, didn't respond to punishment, and Hare went to the federal penitentiary in New Westminster, British Columbia, to find these extreme cases. He found plenty. In his chilling 1993 book on psychopathy, Without Conscience, The Disturbing World of the Psychopaths Among Us, he quotes one specimen's memories. My mother, the most beautiful person in the world, she was strong. She worked hard to take care of four kids. A beautiful person. I started stealing her jewelry when I was in the fifth grade. You know, I never really knew the bitch. We went our separate ways. For his first paper, now a classic, Hare had his subjects watch a countdown timer. When it reached zero, they got a harmless but painful electric shock, while an electrode taped to their fingers measured perspiration. Normal people would start sweating as the countdown proceeded, nervously anticipating the shock. Psychopaths didn't sweat. They didn't fear punishment, which presumably also holds true outside the laboratory. In Without Conscience, he quotes a psychopathic rapist explaining why he finds it hard to empathize with his victims. They are frightened, right? But, you see, I don't really understand it. I've been frightened myself, and it wasn't unpleasant. In another hair study, groups of letters were flashed to volunteers. Some of them were nonsense. Some formed real words. The subject's job was to press a button whenever he recognized a real word while hair recorded response time and brain activity. Non-psychopaths respond faster and display more brain activity when processing emotionally loaded words, such as rape or cancer, than when they see neutral words, such as tree. With psychopaths, hair found no difference. To them, rape and tree have the same emotional impact. None. Hare made another intriguing discovery by observing the hand gestures, called beats, people make while speaking. Research has shown that such gestures do more than add visual emphasis to our words. Many people gesture while they're on the telephone, for example. It seems they actually help our brains find words. That's why the frequency of beats increases when someone is having trouble finding words or is speaking a second language instead of his or her mother tongue. In a 1991 paper, Hare and his colleagues reported that psychopaths, especially when talking about things they should find emotional, such as their families, produce a higher frequency of beats than normal people. It's as if emotional language is a second language, a foreign language in effect, to the psychopath. Three decades of these studies, by Hare and others, has confirmed that psychopaths' brains work differently from ours, especially when processing emotion and language. Hare once illustrated this for Nicole Kidman, who had invited him to Hollywood to help her prepare for a role as a psychopath in Malice. How, she wondered, could she show the audience there was something fundamentally wrong with her character? I said, here's a scene that you can use, Hare says. You're walking down a street, and there's an accident. 
A car has hit a child in the crosswalk. A crowd of people gather around. You walk up. The child's lying on the ground, and there's blood running all over the place. You get a little blood on your shoes, and you look down and say, Oh, shit. You look over at the child, kind of interested, but you're not repelled or horrified. You're just interested. Then you look at the mother, and you're really fascinated by the mother, who's emoting, crying out, doing all these different things. After a few minutes, you turn away and go back to your house. You go into the bathroom and practice mimicking the facial expressions of the mother. He then pauses and says, That's the psychopath. Somebody who doesn't understand what's going on emotionally, but understands that something important has happened. End quote. Obviously, this is a fascinating subject, made all the more fascinating by the fact that it's only been seriously scientifically studied for about 60 to 70 years. Before that time, of course, the symptoms of psychopathy had been diagnosed and understood for some time, but psychopathy itself had not been invented as a term. Instead, that disorder had been lumped in with a number of other different disorders under the general heading of moral deficiency. It wasn't until 1941 and the publication of Harvey Cleckley's seminal work, The Mask of Sanity, that there was serious scientific research done into psychopathy itself. But perhaps my listeners are wondering what relevance this particular disease has to the types of subjects generally covered by the Corbett Report, which of course is heavily focused on news and politics. Well, I think a greater understanding of what this disease is and how it functions in our society today can be found from this excerpt from Martha Stout's book, The Sociopath Next Door. Quote, Imagine, if you can, not having a conscience. None at all. No feelings of guilt or remorse, no matter what you do. No limiting sense of concern for the well-being of strangers, friends, or even family members. Imagine no struggles with shame, not a single one in your whole life, no matter what kind of selfish, lazy, harmful, or immoral action you had taken. And pretend that the concept of responsibility is unknown to you, except as a burden others seem to accept without question, like gullible fools. Now add to this strange fantasy the ability to conceal from other people that your psychological makeup is radically different from theirs. Since everyone simply assumes that conscience is universal among human beings, hiding the fact that you are conscience-free is nearly effortless. You are not held back from any of your desires by guilt or shame, and you are never confronted by others for your cold-bloodedness. The ice water in your veins is so bizarre, so completely outside of their personal experience, that they seldom even guess at your condition. In other words, you are completely free of internal restraints and your unhampered liberty to do just as you please with no pangs of conscience is conveniently invisible to the world. You can do anything at all and still your strange advantage over the majority of people who are kept in line by their consciences will most likely remain undiscovered. How will you live your life? What will you do with your huge and secret advantage and with the corresponding handicap of other people? Conscience. The answer will depend largely on what your desires happen to be, because people are not all the same. 
even the profoundly unscrupulous, are not all the same. Some people, whether they have a conscience or not, favor the ease of inertia, while others are filled with dreams and wild ambitions. Some human beings are brilliant and talented, some are dull-witted, and most, conscience or not, are somewhere in between. There are violent people and non-violent ones, individuals who are motivated by bloodlust and those who have no such appetites. Provided you are not forcibly stopped, you can do anything at all. If you are born at the right time, with some access to family fortune, and you have a special talent for whipping up other people's hatred and sense of deprivation, you can arrange to kill large numbers of unsuspecting people. With enough money, you can accomplish this from far away, and you can sit back safely and watch in satisfaction. Crazy and frightening, and real, in about 4% of the population. The prevalence rate for anorexic eating disorders is estimated at 3.43%, deemed to be nearly epidemic. And yet this figure is a fraction lower than the rate for antisocial personality. The high-profile disorders classed as schizophrenia occur in only about 1% of the population, a mere quarter of the rate of antisocial personality. And the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention say that the rate of colon cancer in the United States, considered alarmingly high, is about 40 per 100,000, 100 times lower than the rate of antisocial personality. The high incidence of sociopathy in human society has a profound effect on the rest of us who must live on this planet too, even those of us who have not been clinically traumatized. The individuals who constitute this 4% drain our relationships, our bank accounts, our accomplishments, our self-esteem, our very peace on earth. Yet surprisingly, many people know nothing about this disorder, or if they do, they think only in terms of violent psychopathy, murderers, serial killers, mass murderers, people who have conspicuously broken the law many times over, and who, if caught, will be imprisoned, maybe even put to death by our legal system. We are not commonly aware of, nor do we usually identify, the larger number of non-violent sociopaths among us, people who often are not blatant lawbreakers, and against whom our formal legal system provides little defense. Most of us would not imagine any correspondence between conceiving an ethnic genocide and, say, guiltlessly lying to one's boss about a co-worker. But the psychological correspondence is not only there, it is chilling. Simple and profound, the link is the absence of the inner mechanism that beats up on us, emotionally speaking, when we make a choice we view as immoral, unethical, neglectful, or selfish. Most of us feel mildly guilty if we eat the last piece of cake in the kitchen, let alone what we would feel if we intentionally and methodically set about to hurt another person. Those who have no conscience at all are a group unto themselves, whether they be homicidal tyrants or merely ruthless social snipers. The presence or absence of conscience is a deep human division, arguably more significant than intelligence, race, or even gender. What differentiates a sociopath who lives off the labors of others from one who occasionally robs convenience stores, or from one who is a contemporary robber baron, or what makes the difference between an ordinary bully and a sociopathic murderer?
is nothing more than social status, drive, intellect, bloodlust, or simple opportunity. What distinguishes all of these people from the rest of us is an utterly empty hole in the psyche where there should be the most evolved of all humanizing functions. End quote. That is a very powerful articulation of just what is at stake in our ability to understand and recognize psychopathy. If Martha Stout is correct, then one in 25 people can inflict incredible pain on others without feeling a pang of conscience. This does indeed create a very deep, very real divide in the human population between those who are capable of sympathy and empathy and those who are truly incapable of understanding the emotions of others, let alone caring about those emotions. What does this mean for human society, especially a society that has been structured in a top-down hierarchical fashion in which a very few elite yield through their control of the financial, corporate, governmental, and military structures that govern us almost complete control over vast swaths of the population. For an articulation of that, let's turn to a conversation that was held just last week between Alan Watt and Alex Jones on The Alex Jones Show. Well, that's another thing. If you look at these actual elites, they are degenerate, they are inbred like hybrid dogs, that have all sorts of mental problems, health problems. Uh, in fact, interbreeding with the pharaohs, with the British, with the French, it, it leads towards insanity. And I think that, you know, they're saying we're all mentally ill and they're making all normal human behavior mentally ill, except their psychopathic behavior, they're saying that's good. It, that's right, and it's no doubt about it. I mean, Plato said about it all that 2,300 years ago. He said we can breed in traits or breed out traits, and for leaders who want to breed out certain emotional traits, we have psychopaths who definitely who are intergenerational in charge of this world system who truly believe they are the only sane people on earth. Yeah, I've met a lot of them, and they really do revel in there being above you. And, and because of that attitude, they've lost their basic humanity, and they're so shuttered. But they are specialized in a predatory fashion yep. uh, to just be pure machines of deceit and manipulation, and they love the dumbed-down cattle. They, they have celebrations laughing at the cattle. And then, and then they say that because they're so easily butchered that the cattle deserve it, when that's humanity. Yeah, that's right. I always get the analogy of a farmer in the field who breaks the legs of a cow and then kicks the cow and hates it because it can't get up. They have brought people down to utter misery through their machinations, down to uh, the, especially the 20th century into the present, and all their games have played in poverty, uh, introduction, etc. And then they blame the people for the state that they're in. That's the same sort of a sadistic, strange, warped mentality of the farmer breaking the, the cattle's cows and kicking it because they can't get out. Well, that's a perfect analogy. Take take the Royal Commission on Population, 44 to 49, funded by His Majesty, and, and it's public, and it states, we're going to carry out eugenics, but to wreck the third world, we're actually going to make sure they have more kids at first so that that holds their society back, but then we'll kill them and sterilize them later in life 
It's kind of like the two two three caliber in Vietnam to wound people to cause more resource sapping instead of just yep. killing them. They say we're going to wound the world to hold everybody down. They're not trying to lift man up. No. They, oh, they're cosmic criminals, Alan. They are. They are. And they know what's at stake because if the public truly did know, we'd have to make a decision of what to do with them. Yeah, well, I've always said if there's too many of us, the elite ought to just all commit suicide. I think the world would be in a lot better position. They, 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 they show by example. Yeah, lead by example. <laughs> That's what they should do. <laughs> Stay there, Alan. We're going to take calls when we get back. Well, that does seem to make a certain amount of sense. But is it really true that the elite that really govern our society are psychopaths? Well, certainly they are inbred, as we've talked about on this podcast many times before. But what about the psychopathy traits? Well, let's take a look at some politicians who, of course, are just the front men and front women and sock puppets for the actual elite themselves, but are obviously handpicked and groomed for their roles. So do they exhibit any of the traits of a psychopath? Well, let's examine some of those traits. Let's see. Psychopaths, having no conscience whatsoever, of course, never feel any shame about any of their actions, no matter how egregious. Hmm. Angry over ethics and spending. It's aimed largely at the man on the left, David Dingwall, the former head of Canada's Mint who left his job last month under fire for his more than $700,000 in expenses last year, even expensing a pack of gum. He's now in line for a government severance package. Home Secretary Jackie Smith and her husband have apologised following another controversy over MPs' expenses. She said she had mistakenly submitted an expenses claim which included the cost of two pay-per-view adult films which were watched at her family home. Ms Smith is already under investigation over allowances claimed for her second home. Throughout the long and difficult period of Watergate, I have felt it was my duty to persevere to make every possible effort to complete the term of office to which you elected me. In the past few days, however, it has become evident to me that I no longer have a strong enough political base in the Congress to justify continuing that effort. Okay, no sense of shame whatsoever. Check. Well, what other traits do psychopaths display? Well, having no shame and no conscience, they're obviously natural-born liars. They're able to lie without feeling any sense of shame, without blushing, without even batting an eyelid. And they can lie as convincingly as they can sell any other emotion or any other fact that they want you to believe, whether for their own political agenda or merely for the fun of it. But I want to say one thing to the American people. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie, not a single time, never. These allegations are false, and I need to go back to work for the American people. Thank you. It concludes that Iraq has chemical and biological weapons, that Saddam has continued to produce them, that he has existing and active military plans for the use of chemical and biological weapons, 
which could be activated within 45 minutes, including against his own Shia population, and that he is actively trying to acquire nuclear weapons capability. It's good to be back at the Council on Foreign Relations. As uh, Pete mentioned, I've been a member for a long time and was actually a director for some period of time. I never mentioned that when I was campaigning for re-election back home in Wyoming. Well, let me just ask you this. If they did not have these weapons of mass destruction, though, granted all of that is true, mm -hmm. why then did they pose an immediate threat to us, to well, this country? The, you and a few other critics are the only people I've heard use the phrase immediate threat. I didn't. The president didn't. And uh, it's become kind of folklore that that's, that's what's happened. The president went... You're saying that nobody in the administration uh, uh, said I, that? I can't speak for nobody and everybody in the administration and say nobody said Vice that. Vice president didn't say that? Not, if you have any citations, uh, I'd like to see it. Yeah, here it says, some have argued that the... This is you speaking. Some have argued that the nuclear threat from Iraq is not imminent, that Saddam is at least five to seven years away from having nuclear weapons. I would not be so certain. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, close to imminent. <laughs> well, um, I, I tried to be precise and I've tried to be accurate. I'm so no terrorist I've, state poses a greater or more immediate threat to the security mm -hmm. of our people and the stability of the world than the regime of Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Mm -hmm. uh, it, my view of the, the situation was that he, he had, we, we believed, the best intelligence that we had and other countries had. Hmm, natural born liars. Okay, check. Well, then what about the central trait of the psychopath? Someone who is able to inflict harm knowingly and willfully on others without any pang of conscience, guilt, or remorse, whether for their own gain or, once again, merely for the fun of it. We must stop the terror. I call upon all nations to do everything they can to stop these terrorist killers. Thank you. Now watch this drive. So in other words, if the president deems that he's got to torture somebody, including by crushing the testicles of the person's child, there is no law that can stop that. No treaty. No, and then also no law by Congress. That's what you wrote in the August 2002 memo. I think it depends on why the president thinks he needs to do that. I don't think presidents will ever do that. <laughs> So, do you think something different will have to happen now? I don't think so. Why not? Because children will die, whether they're in foster care or whether they're in their own relatives' care. Children will die. Accidents will happen. Period. We have heard that a half a million children have died. I mean, that's more children than died when, when in, in Hiroshima. and and. You know, is the price worth it? I think this is a very hard choice, but the price, we think the price is worth it. Mike, welcome to the show. We appreciate you being on tonight. Thanks for the invitation, Joe. Okay, let's talk about the rat of the week. Why is Bear 
corporation the rat of the week. Internal documents show that after this company positively, absolutely knew that they had a medication that was infected with the AIDS virus, they took the product off the market in the U.S. and then they dumped it in France, Europe, Asia, and Latin America. The medicine's called Factor 8. It was an, inject an injection medicine that was used for hemophiliacs, mostly children. Children had been born with an incurable disease. Hold on, disease. hold on, Mike. So, hold on, hold on. So you're yeah. telling me that Bear knew that this drug was infected with the AIDS virus? They yanked it from the market in America, and then they dumped it in markets overseas? They had to figure out a way, Joe, to make a profit on a product that they could not sell in America. So they made a huge profit. They, jumped, they dropped the product in Japan, Spain, and France. A disgusting ability to show callous disregard for human life and to inflict unspeakable pain and suffering on others without even a glimpse or a slight tingling of remorse. Well, apparently, check. Yes, of course, all of those examples are very disturbing. And I would suggest that you go to the documentation list for today's episode to find links to all of those particular audio clips which I just used to help illustrate these examples, because they are quite illustrative in and of themselves. And I think it is tempting, and perhaps even at times easy, to point out if not the actual clinical psychopathy of some of these individual politicians, such as, of course, Donald Rumsfeld from episode 89, what does make someone like that tick? Well, it could quite possibly be psychopathy. But as I say, even though that's very tempting to do, I think if we point out the psychopathic traits of any individual politician or politicians, even a group of them, by identifying them, I think we run the risk of mistaking the brush strokes for the painting. That is to say, if we look too closely at a painting, at each individual brush stroke, we might not even realize that what we are looking at is a painting. We have to step back for a moment and look at the painting in its broader context to understand what it is we're looking at. So yes, there does seem to be a number of people in positions of power in our society who exhibit psychopathic tendencies and who are quite possibly actual psychopaths. What does that tell us about the society? Well, in order to start coming to grips with the bigger picture of the system which is behind all of these individual psychopaths, let's take a look at a very interesting work called Political Ponerology, by a little-known psychologist and researcher, Dr. Andrew Lobachevsky. Ponerology is a theological term for the study of evil, but behind the Iron Curtain, during the communist reign over Poland, Dr. Lobachevsky and some of his colleagues began a scientific study of what we consider evil. Why do evil people do what they do, and how do they get into the positions of power where they can do what they do? Political ponerology is the end result of decades of research from first-hand personal experience living under a communist dictatorship. Obviously, Dr. Lobachevsky and his colleagues knew what they were talking about and engaged in many years of study. This looks like a very fascinating book, and I won't actually 
recommend the book because I have not read it in, in its entirety yet. But the passages that I have read have been extremely enlightening and extremely interesting. So I would recommend you go to ponerology.com to check out Political Ponerology. But right now I'd like to turn to a specific passage from Political Ponerology, which is located in an article on Cassiopeia.org, which quotes judiciously from this work. In this passage, Dr. Lobachevsky is talking about how a society can develop in which psychopaths are the natural rulers. In fact, this is almost a natural process in society. Once again, quoting from Political Ponerology by Dr. Andrew Lobachevsky. Quote, In any society in this world, psychopathic individuals and some of the other deviants create a ponerogenically active network of common collusions, partially estranged from the community of normal people. Some inspirational role of the essential psychopathy in this network also appears to be a common phenomenon. They are aware of being different as they obtain their life experience and become familiar with different ways of fighting for their goals. Their world is forever divided into us and them. Their world with its own laws and customs and that other foreign world full of presumptuous ideas and customs in light of which they are condemned morally. Their sense of honor bids them cheat and revile that other human world and its values. In contradiction to the customs of normal people, they feel non-fulfillment of their promises or obligations is customary behavior. They also learn how their personalities can have traumatizing effects on the personalities of those normal people and how to take advantage of the root of terror for purposes of reaching their goals. This dichotomy of worlds is permanent and does not disappear even if they succeed in realizing their dreams of gaining power over the society of normal people. This proves that the separation is biologically conditioned. In such people, a dream emerges like some youthful utopia of a happy world and a social system which would not reject them or force them to submit to laws and customs whose meaning is incomprehensible to them. They dream of a world in which their simple and radical way of experiencing and perceiving reality, i.e. lying, cheating, destroying, using others, etc., would dominate, where they would, of course, be assured safety and prosperity. Those others, different, but also more technically skillful, should be put to work to achieve this goal. We, after all, will create a new government, one of justice for psychopaths. They are prepared to fight and suffer for the sake of such a brave new world, and also, of course, to inflict suffering upon others. Such a vision justifies killing people whose suffering does not move them to compassion, because they are not quite conspecific. End quote. In this passage, Dr. Lobachevsky is pointing out that not only do psychopaths naturally rise to positions of power in society, just given the fact that they naturally crave positions of power over normal people, but also, of course, because they are natural-born liars and killers and deceivers who will do anything to get into those positions of power, but also that they'll start to shape the society itself into a reflection of their own personality. Society becomes psychopathic in their image 
once they gain those levers of control. This is a fundamental point to understand, and one that has numerous ramifications. Of course, one of the ways in which society itself can be steered into a psychopathic system, whereby, of course, the psychopaths will be the ones to succeed, is through control of our corporate economic existence. Living in a corporate state, the fundamental psychopathy of the corporations themselves, almost like individuals, is of fundamental importance. And just as psychopaths tend to rise in human society, so psychopathic corporations tend to rise in the corporate structure of the economic world. This is a very important point, and one that I will leave Dr. Robert Hare to articulate. Of course, you'll remember from earlier in this episode that Dr. Hare is the pioneering psychologist behind the study of psychopathy, who came up with the diagnostic test that is still used to diagnose psychopaths. He appeared in the 2003 Canadian documentary, The Corporation, and in that documentary, he diagnosed the corporations themselves as psychopathic, using the actual criteria that he would use to diagnose any patient as a psychopath. Once again, Dr. Robert Hare from The Corporation. A psychopath's uh, relations with others are superficial, uh, surface, uh, very, very little depth, uh, mostly style over substance. And the idea is to impress other individuals, to somehow put them in a position where you can manipulate them and so forth. And a corporation, I imagine, would be not unlike that in many respects. They would have public relations firms. They would be spending half their uh, time and a lot of their budget on trying to present a particular image to other people. And this image is a very superficial, and you never really get to know the real corporation. You're going to see what they want you to see. Uh, a psychopath is also uh, a grandiose individual, has a, uh, a very powerful sense of self, uh, believes that uh, he or she is the center of the universe, better, uh, smarter than everybody else. Uh, corporations, I suppose, almost by their very nature, would have to adopt this particular attitude. If they uh, took the stance that they were, in fact, inferior to every other company, uh, they're probably not going to get very far. So I imagine that they would spend an awful lot of time uh, explaining to others and to themselves that uh, we're number one, we're the best. Uh, the psychopath is also very manipulative, tends to manipulate, con, and deceive other people to try and mold them into something that they can use. Remember, the psychopath is really a predator, and uh, uh, as a predator, you're trying to groom and put your prey in the right position for it, where you can make some use of the, uh, uh, this particular object, is the way they would see them. Would a corporation be the same? Uh, to a very large extent, I would imagine so, uh, because what you're trying to do is manipulate everything, including public opinion, for one thing. And uh, imagine in a sales meeting where you're trying to get everybody pumped up, you've got to have to, you know, be raw, raw, you've got to manipulate them, get them into a position where they actually believe in something that they may not have believed in before. Uh, psychopath lacks empathy. And this simply means that 
it's very difficult or impossible for a psychopath to put himself inside the, the emotional skin of somebody else. Uh, they may understand at some sort of super, superficial level that this person is going through what could be uh, construed as an emotion by other people, but I don't understand what it is. This is a psychopath's uh, position. Uh, would a company or a corporation actually lack empathy? Well, maybe by definition they would have to. Uh, if you're concerned about uh, the fate of your competitors, uh, and also the general public, uh, you may not have uh, um, profits that are so respectable. And so uh, I suppose this corporation could lack empathy in, uh, in the sense that the psychopath does. Lacks remorse is another characteristic that defines psychopathy. That is, having done something, you don't feel badly about it. Corporation, I imagine, would be much the same, uh, unless one is caught. Now, a psychopath who is caught for committing a crime, the first thing he'll say is, yeah, I'm really sorry I did it, I, I feel remorse. But only when caught. And I imagine that most corporations be much the same. Uh, if, you know, if, if some sort of regulatory body finds out what you're doing and if it's considered to be illegal, I would imagine that uh, they would say, well, yes, I, I really, we're really sorry, but otherwise they're not likely to do that. Psychopath doesn't accept responsibility for uh, his or her own behavior. Uh, usually, uh, diffusion of responsibility is the name of the game for the psychopath. Somebody else made me do it. It wasn't my fault. It was fate. Uh, and uh, I'm not really responsible. Corporations would do this almost routinely, I would imagine. Uh, in fact, they would have public relations personnel whose only job is to make sure that the, that this, this image is portrayed to the general public as, yes, uh, uh, somebody else, it was fate, it was a political decision, or it was not, the market certainly crashed, and there was a war in some other place, and this accounted for everything. Uh, psychopaths tend to be uh, impulsive, but in a fairly controlled sense. That is, uh, most psychopaths are not going to do things if there's an external control present. The psychopath standing on the street corner is not going to commit a crime with the policeman standing right next to him. On the other hand, if the policeman is not there, if the external control is not there, uh, then it's possible that he or she will do whatever he feels like doing if he has a chance of getting away with it. Are corporations impulsive? Uh, it's, it's difficult to actually evaluate this, but I would imagine so uh, uh, in, in some some cases, particularly if the corporation is not well structured, if the rules and the uh, of, of behavior and the hierarchical structure is not firmly in place, then it would be very possible for a uh, corporation to be to act impulsively. Uh, of course, if you do this, then uh, then you run the risk of actually you know experiencing fairly serious losses. Uh, psychopaths don't uh, have long-term goals. Uh, most of their uh, their, the things that they're striving for are short-term and could refer to as a short-term form of hedonism. Uh, and corporations, I imagine, are much the same way. In fact, uh, one could argue that sacrificing short-term profits for the long-term potential of making profits would not be in the company's best interest. So almost by their very nature, they would have to uh, lack long-term goals. Now, some corporations, of course, would have a long-term strategy, but at the same time, they'd have these short-term goals that are firmly in place. They've got to go to the next stockholders meeting, for example, and show that there's a profit. Psychopaths tend to be irresponsible, and that means that, that their behavior uh, doesn't take into account what's likely to happen to somebody else. They will put others at risk. Their own behavior puts other people at risk all the time. This could be in driving, it could be in their, their personal relations or, or anything they, they do in their, their general life. And corporations, I imagine, uh, 
uh, could be uh, irresponsible in exactly the same way. That is, in an attempt to satisfy the corporate goal, everybody else is put at risk. This could be other companies. As a matter of fact, I suppose one could argue that this is good in the business sense. I mean, if your competitors fall by the wayside because you are acting irresponsibly with respect to them, that's good as long as, it's, as you get some sort of goal out of that, some sort of benefit. Psychopaths also tend to engage in behavior that is antisocial or at least asocial from a very early age, and this continues on throughout uh, most of the lifespan. And by this I mean their behavior is not necessarily criminal in the strict sense of the term, but in fact it's harmful to other people, other individuals. may not take into account the fact that your behavior is going to have negative consequences for somebody else. Corporation could be much the same, uh, and this ties in with irresponsibility to a certain extent. That uh, What they're doing uh, with respect to the general public and to other companies would clearly be looked at, viewed as, or construed as asocial or antisocial. We just don't really care. Certainly it's not a stretch to understand how corporations themselves can act as psychopaths in society by lying, cheating, stealing, deceiving, and yes, even murdering in order to achieve their goal of profit. But also equally obvious is that corporations and the corporate structure of the economy is not the only guiding force in society or reflection of our society as a culture. This topic, of course, of the bending of society into a psychopathic system is just simply too large to comprehend in one sitting or to, for me to possibly articulate in one podcast episode. But there's an important distinction to be made here, and that is that although many sources, and including many psychologists, tend to conflate psychopathy and psychopaths with sociopathy, and sociopaths, there are some doctors that make a distinction between those terms. The distinction being that psychopaths are inherently psychopathic. It is part of their inbuilt tendencies, whether that's a genetic predisposition or something to do with brain chemistry or hormones or however that arises, it's somehow a part of their inborn character. Sociopaths, on the other hand, are those who become or display psychopathic tendencies, but these are a result or arise because of the environmental factors that they're placed into. People living in the same household as a psychopath, for example, especially impressionable and developing young children, will often develop psychological abnormalities, including sociopathic tendencies and traits. So when we as a society are placed into a psychopathic structure and system, such as Dr. Robert Hare outlined in the psychopathic corporate state, eventually the people living in that system will start to take on those psychopathic traits and tendencies and become sociopathic. One example of that, which I'll leave you with today, is a particularly disturbing article from the Mail Online from 13th of June 2009. This appears under the headline, Why the hell should I feel sorry, says girl soldier who abused Iraqi prisoners at Abu Ghraib prison. Quote, In this deeply disturbing interview, 
the trailer trash torturer who appalled the world by appearing in shocking souvenir photographs, remains utterly unrepentant and says she has 800 more torture photos that could rock the White House. When we speak, three things strike me. Lindy England's breathtaking lack of contrition, her unsuitability to have been a serving soldier, and her utter indifference towards the horrifically abused prisoners at Abu Ghraib, 90% of whom were later released without charge. Since no established biographer would touch her life story, it was even dropped by the literary agent who handled O.J. Simpson's widely reviled book, If I Did It. Her biography has been penned by a greenhorn local author, Gary Winkler. For a man whose two previous works were lilting chronicles of Appalachian life, it has proved a chastening experience. Not only has he fallen out bitterly with his subject and her agent-come-lawyer and confidant, Roy T. Hardy, but he has patently struggled to get the characteristically withdrawn England to open up. I just don't think she's a very deep person, Winkler, a white-bearded former musician in his late fifties, concludes miserably. Lindy only has two moods, bored and pissed off. During our first meeting, when she yawns through my questions, I see what he means. Two days later, however, perhaps enlivened by the antidepressant tablets upon which she relies, England is more animated and opens up to describe the background to the photographs in more detail than ever before. They were taken on three separate nights in late October and early November 2003. At the time, her job was to process the detainees' admissions and release forms. As a clerical support worker, she had no business in the so-called hard site at Abu Ghraib, a block of some 40 cells where the supposedly most dangerous inmates were held. But she routinely sneaked in late at night to sleep with Grainer, a hulking 6-foot-3-inch ex-marine in charge of the night patrol. I ask her about one of the most chilling pictures, in which seven naked detainees brought to the block after allegedly taking part in a riot somewhere in the prison were forced to form a human pyramid. After instructing the men to pile up on top of one another, Corporal Charles Grainer proudly draped his arm around England, and the smiling couple posed beside the grotesque tangle of human flesh. Looking at the image now, it appears that the detainees could not have remained in this painful position for very long. Yet England says, quite matter-of-factly, that they were forced to stay fixed in position for 20 minutes or something. When I suggest that this must have been excruciatingly painful, she shrugs and replies, probably. So why hadn't she asked Grainer to call a halt? A grin and another shrug. I'm pretty sure he'd have said no. There were only three of us and seven of them, and he wanted to contain them by keeping them connected and concentrating on not falling, so they wouldn't overpower us. That's how he explained it. But surely she must have felt some pity for them. As often, she takes an eternity to reply, then says, In my eyes they were the enemy. The other side. What happens in war happens. They would have done twenty times worse to us. End quote. I'll let my listeners read through that entire article for themselves. As disturbing as it is, it does provide an insight into someone who may very well quite possibly be a psychopath or, at the very least, has become sociopathic. 
Of course, to go along in this fashion and to take a look at how a psychopathic control structure is turning society into a bunch of uncaring sociopaths towards their fellow humans in no way in no shape, in no form, excuses the horrific actions of those who eventually are corrupted, twisted, and sickened by this system. Of course, everyone is responsible for their actions. But the very scary part of it is that society itself runs the risk of becoming the vessel through which everyone is remade in the eyes of the psychopaths. If success is always defined on the psychopath's terms, then everyone will want to emulate the psychopaths in order to get ahead. I think this is the type of thing that we all understand at some level, and unfortunately I guess one in 25 of my listeners might understand this at an entirely different level. But here, as always, I exhort and plead with my listeners to begin the research for themselves. This, of course, is, as I say, a mind-bogglingly vast topic that covers and connects so many of the points that we've talked about in this podcast before that it is really inconceivable to think about doing it justice in a single podcast episode. But I think this is a type of Rosetta Stone information that brings so many of those points into clear focus, the same way that stepping back from those individual brushstrokes will reveal the painting that we're looking at. This is key information, because there is nothing speculative or theoretical about it. There is a psychological condition which separates 4% of humanity from the rest of humanity, and which makes them natural-born killers, natural-born liars, and natural-born leaders. The other 96%, blissfully unaware that anyone could possibly harbor such horrific and cold and calculating thoughts as the psychopath does, can't even imagine that such a system could actually exist, and therefore is easily led along to the slaughter by the big lie. I will, of course, leave some links to some threads from the PrisonPlanet.com forum, from which a lot of information from today's episodes was gleaned, and through which a lot more information can be gleaned, and I would suggest you start your research at those links. But of course, wherever you start your research, simply do it and get this information out to others. But today I will leave you with this thought. If the psychopaths are the wolves, and those who are unaware of the psychopaths are the sheep, and those who are aware of the psychopaths but are not themselves psychopathic are the sheep dogs trying to herd the sheep and keep the wolves at bay, which one are you? That's it for today's episode. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me this week and asking you to join me again next week for episode 91 of The Corbett Report. Environmentalism is corporate controlled.
we have heard that a half a million children have died. I mean, that's more children than died when, when in, in Hiroshima. And, and, you know, is the price worth it? I think this is a very hard choice, but the price, we think the price is worth it.